pretty awesome passage, isn't it? Folks, I do have an announcement. <clears throat> Sorry, it was given to me before. Um, we all need to be uh, officially told that uh, the November members meeting has been brought forward to the 22nd. Uh, the 22nd of November, members meeting, rather than the 29th, I think that was. Uh, and uh, the, main, uh, the main items there is the appointment of an associate pastor, uh, the reappointment of elders, and there'll be other matters mentioned as well. So that's just to officially notify you uh, for the 22nd of November members meeting. Thank you. <clears throat> Please be in prayer for that meeting, as we need to be in prayer for all of our meetings, don't we? Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, already for the precious time we've enjoyed in your presence and father as we open your word there's some awesome things that we pray uh, that you will help us to see lord help us to um, listen to what you say lord we really do need to skim across this these these uh, chapters uh, but help us we pray to see the nuggets the truth uh, these elements that we would want to uh, that you would want us to receive this morning help us to do that as we commit ourselves to you now in jesus precious name Amen. <clears throat> uh, I think to use the word confronting would be the best word. One of the, one of the most confronting experiences I think that Rosemary and I had on, on a holiday that we had several years ago, we went to Europe, um, was when we walked through the ancient Roman ruins of, of, of uh, Pompeii. Um, if you've been there, uh, maybe you felt it was fairly daunting and, and confronting as well. For most of, as most of you know, this city was completely enveloped and buried by volcanic ash when Mount Vesuvius erupted back in AD 79, uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. I just thought it was interesting to note that the temple, the Jerusalem temple, was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Nine years later, a Roman city was destroyed. I just thought that was interesting. I'm not drawing any conclusions. You can do that. But I just thought that was pretty interesting it caught the inhabitants by surprise somewhere between 10 and 20,000 people lived there in that day most people got out but about 2,000 people didn't survive that particular catastrophe and you can still see some of the human remains that are there and the plaster cast shapes of the various postures that these people were found in um, one thing is for sure they weren't expecting such a catastrophe. As one particular article said, the inhabitants of Pompeii did not know that Vesuvius was a volcano. Isn't that interesting? They didn't know it was a volcano. Uh, it hadn't erupted in 1,800 years. Um, and the other interesting thing is, there isn't even a Latin word for volcano. So you might say it just caught them by surprise. Here they were, if you try to visualise what it was like, they were going about their daily activities, their daily rituals, their daily routines, just like you and I do in our days as well. Then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, their lives were dramatically, dramatically changed, terrifyingly changed. There's actually a historical record of someone having an eyewitness. His name was Pliny the Younger. You may have heard of him, a historical figure. He was on the other side of the Bay of Naples watching this. And this is what he said. He said, on, uh, he said on, this was on the 24th of August, 79 AD, across the Bay of Naples. This guy was watching. He said, darkness fell, not the dark of a moonless or cloudy night, 
but as if the lamp had been put out in a dark room. You could hear the wails of women, the cries of children, the shouts of men. Others were reaching to the gods. Others declared the gods no more. Utterly terrifying, utterly unexpected was that catastrophe that happened nearly 2,000 years ago. How much more will it be for those who are on the earth when the events as described in these next two chapters of Revelation actually take place? And some insight is given to us of some of the reaction of what's going to happen to those who are on the earth. If you have a look at Revelation 6 verses 15 and 17, it's quite descriptive. The kings of the earth and the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And so we go from a scene of, of adoration and worship back in chapters 4 and 5, of him who sits on the throne and, and of the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. To where we now see this focus comes in on chapter 6 and 8 of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We need to recognise he's not just a lamb, he's a lion as well. And we now see this focus turning to him as he takes the scroll with the seven seals and begins to take off, open each one of those seven seals. That's the scene we have before us here now. Six of those seven seals are actually removed in chapter 6. And then we have two scenes in chapter 7 from verses 1 and 8 and then 9 to 17 which form what we call an interlude prior to the removal of the seventh seal in chapter 8 and verse 1. And as each seal is removed, it ushers in a specific divine judgment that will be poured out upon the earth. One writer says, contained within these seven seals are all the judgments that Christ will execute on the earth until the end when he will return again. It also begins to describe the first half of the 70th week of Daniel when you look at chapter, uh, chapter 9 and chapter, uh, verse 27. And the other thing we need to compare all of this with is what Jesus said in Matthew 24. We call that the little apocalyptic uh, writings of Jesus, the small apocalypse. Um, chapter 24 of Matthew, it's good to read that to compare what he said then to what's being said here in Revelation. And look, it's important just to have a quick little reminder again that, um, that there are many godly men and women, as it was said last week, who, although mostly will agree on the events themselves that will take place that Scripture reveals, they will nonetheless hold differing views on how and when the sequence of these events take place. So most of the evangelicals will agree on the events, but what they disagree is the sequence, the timing, when things will happen. And that just happens. That's just how it is. So it's on that basis that each of us needs to be careful. We need to be careful about that. Um, that we don't become arrogant or dogmatic about our own views. Because who am I to say this is how it's going to be? So we need to be open and we need to have a bit of humility before God's word and allow the godly men and women to have their own various views. And there would be many in this congregation, I'm sure. Um, 
And I like what Leon Morris, and Leon Morris himself has a particular view which comes out, but I like what he says about the overall thing. This is what he says. He said, God is in control. God is in control of the whole process and God is concerned for his people. So through apocalyptic, so, sorry, so though apocalyptic judgments be loosed against all mankind, believers included, this is his particular view, God's people need never be dismayed. Don't be dismayed. Don't be afraid. They will, they will be preserved no matter what the tribulation. And that's something that we need to grab hold of here today and throughout the whole book of Revelation. Chuck Swindoll, he says this. He says, but the big picture is apparent. Severe judgment is coming, but God has everything under control. And how reassuring that is, isn't it? For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, how reassuring that is, that he's under control. We will be preserved for those who are in Christ. Can I ask, is that where you are this morning, yourself? Absolutely assured that you're in the master's hand. You're in the hand of the shepherd. Nothing's going to touch you. Are you ready for that day? That's the other thing that I think comes out of all of this. You need to be ready. You need to have that absolute assurance that if Jesus was to come today, that you'd be ready to meet him. You'd be ready to meet him. You wouldn't be afraid of him coming and calling you by name. If you're in that category, you might need to talk to somebody after the service. I'd love you to do that. If you feel that I wouldn't be comfortable if Jesus was to come today. Whatever that time might be for you. So as we turn to chapter 6 and the first eight verses, there's a, we, we need to notice there's a reoccurring pattern that happens in this, in this chapter, in these first eight verses. The first thing is this, that Christ opens the seal. One of the four, secondly, the four, one of the four living uh, creatures cries out, come. Thirdly, a specific coloured horse leaps out onto the scene. Um, and this is also where scholars will have, uh, and others will have differing views, specifically about what these horses and horsemen mean. The first seal. In the first seal we see the white horse and the rider. And this is not to be confused with the white horse and rider that's found in chapter 19 and 11. The, the rider on the white horse in chapter 19 and verse 11 is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That is clearly obvious. Have a look, you'll see for yourself. This one is not to be confused with that rider with Jesus in chapter 19, verse 11. Um, this one, as it seems to me, as I've sort of been reading and looking at this, seems to me uh, to be a counterfeit Christ, an antichrist. And Jesus spoke of this again in Matthew 24. This rider has a bow, but you'll notice he has no arrows. A bow with no arrows, possibly representing conquest by false, uh, by false peace. A bloodless coup by false peace. A false security that he brings. A, a false religion. A false religion that is attractive to the world. What a religion that would be if the world embraces a particular religion. Imagine that. It's false. And you notice too that he was given a crown. This rider was given a crown. And I won't go into all these details with every one of these, but this is interesting. The word crown here in the original language is, is a crown that means one of victory. It is not one that means of regal authority. It's not a crown of regal authority that Christ wears as the true one and only king. 
This one's given victory, but he's not a king. This one is not a true king. He will rule by deception. And we see glimpses of this again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 3. And also again in Matthew 24, verse 24. Have a look at those as well. We need to compare that. Moving along, and I have to move fairly quickly. The second seal is open and, the, and a red horse appears. And the rider was given a large sword. And the scripture says that he was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. So here's this false peace that's providing over the earth at this time. And this other rider comes and he's been given the power to take peace away. And again, look at 1 Thessalonians 5.3. It speaks of all these things and I'll read that verse out this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5.3. While people are saying peace and safety, right, there's the false peace, the false security. Destruction will come on them suddenly. Sounds a bit like Pompeii, doesn't it? Um, and as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Just thinking, and we have to skim over it, hope it whets your appetite for personal reading and in your, in your life groups as well. The third seal that produces a black horse, which is said to be the colour of famine. Um, war and famine often go together. The commentator uh, John F. Welford, he says this, famine is the inevitable aftermath of war. This will be a major cause of death in the Great Tribulation. The black colour of the horse speaks of famine and death, says this particular commentator. When the fourth seal is opened by Christ, a pale horse comes, comes forth, a pale horse. The actual meaning of the word pale is a sickly greeny colour. A sickly kind of green, paley colour. And as I look over the congregation, I can't see anybody in that colour. You look nice and healthy and good blood flowing to you. Um, so it's sickly greenish colour. Death and Hades is its rider. A parallel to this particular scene is found in Ezekiel chapter 14 and 21. hope I'm not saying these things too quickly for you if you want to just jot some notes down. Have a look at Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 21. And here God gives them authority to kill one-fourth of the earth's population, a quarter of the earth's population. This is, this is amazing. This is frightening, isn't it? So in today's population, the world population, which is just over 7 billion people, do your sums, as I did mine, we're talking about 1.75 billion people will be killed by this particular black horse, sorry, by this greeny yellow, this, 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 this particular pale horse, this rider, in today's uh, population. 1.75 billion will perish under this fourth judgment. And again, in the words of one commentator, he, says, he simply says this, what terrible judgments await the Christ-rejecting world. And it's good for us as a church to recognise this awesomeness that, that we're saved by grace. Communion tables spoke of that. Look what we're saved from. What terrible judgments await a Christ-rejecting world. And that's going to happen. He is gentle, Jesus, meek and mild, who looks upon a little child. But he's also the lamb. He's also the lion. Uh, more about that in a minute. But for those of us who have, who have received Christ as Saviour and Lord. These things are not to be feared. 
In fact, if you lean towards the pre-tribulation view, and I'll put my hand up and say, I probably lean towards that view. I won't be dogmatic about it, but I probably lean. If, I, if out of all the views, I probably lean that way. And the teaching of that particular view is that you won't even be here when these things happen, when that first seal opens, which ushers in the, 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 the tribulation period, the seven years tribulation. The pre-trib view, if you remember pre-tribulation, is that the church is translated, the church is actually uh, raptured into the presence of Christ. If you hold that view, and I, as I said, I'll probably lean there. Um, but for those who are on the earth, whatever your view is, can I put it this way? Whatever your position happens to be regarding end times, the critical thing is this. Whatever your position is, the critical thing is this. You need to be positioned in Christ. Amen? Have any position you like, but the critical thing is you be positioned in Christ through your faith in him. That's what matters. It doesn't matter about anything else. I like what someone said. It's been around for a while now. They're saying, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pan person, you know. What review do you have on pan? Or it'll all pan out in the end type thing. Be on the welcoming committee, not on the planning committee. There's those kinds of things. I think there's good value in some of that. Whatever your position, you need to be positioned in Christ. That's the, that's the key thing. The opening of the fifth seal by Christ introduces a new dimension to these judgments in that this scene now translates to heaven. To heaven where we see the souls of those who are slain because of the word of God. In other words, they're martyred because of their faith. And we're seeing that happening in an unprecedented way in this day and age right now. Someone said there is more people being persecuted for Christ today than there ever was in the history of the church. It's going on. It's not new to us. It's happening. It's happening in our own country in many ways too. I'm not saying so much about the martyred part of it. But the persecution sure is. So here's this scene, they are, and they, these souls of the ones who were slain for the word of God are under the altar. And it seems to be a bit of a curious picture. Why are they under the altar? And uh, Leon Morris says this, he says, It seems to be a place of privilege, probably also of safety in God's keeping. John may also mean that when the martyrs sacrificed their lives for God, the most significant part of what happened took part in heaven. God notices things. He sees us. Jesus says, I know where you live. He knows, he sees everything about our lives. Nothing goes unnoticed. We're the apple of his eye. The most sensitive part of God. That's what you are to him. Revelation 6 and verse 10 says this. This is speaking about these ones who have been slain for Christ. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Isn't that a prayer that we pray too? Sometimes. And so they do cry out to God. And he does hear their prayers for vindication. He hears their prayers that justice be done. Because of their, putic, because of their persecutors who have prospered while they've suffered torture and death. And sometimes it's easy for us to say, God, it's just not fair. But we need to listen. We need to read his scripture. We need to wait we need to realise he is in absolute control and nothing, nothing goes unnoticed by him who sits on the throne. And how relevant this is, how relevant this picture is for the persecuted church today. And yet God is not unmindful of their situation here in chapter 6, just as he is not unmindful of any of ours personally or in our church today. 
He's aware of everything. But there are times, as we cry out, there are times he will answer those prayers. He does answer the prayer. But sometimes, as we see in verse 11, he says, wait. When you pray and you say, God didn't answer my prayer, it doesn't mean that he necessarily will give you what you've asked for. He answers your prayer, but sometimes you'll say no. He'll answer you. Sometimes he'll say, wait. Sometimes he will give you requests. He does answer your prayer. And in verse 11, he's saying to them, wait, he says, because he will surely act when the time is right. He works all things perfectly after his own will. He has a perfect time. And we need to realise that we need to be humbly submissive to his time, the way he works. The opening of the sixth seal. This implies that there will be a variety, again, of unprecedented, severe cosmic activities along with unprecedented, and I believe supernaturally inspired, terror and panic among all unbelievers. Again, verses 15 and 17. It won't just be something that, con- that, that happens naturally out of yourself, getting fearful and panicky. I think God will have his hand in this. I think it, it'll be supernaturally inspired and instigated panic and terror. See that in the Old Testament sometimes. Um, And you know what? In this particular scene, there'll be no heroes here. No heroes. No TV tough guys who will stand up to God with their fist in his face and say, I'm not afraid. You won't see any of that happening here. They're all terrified. The whole lot of them are hiding and saying, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. They're fearful it's an, it's an absolutely unbelievably, I think, unimaginable terror uh, and panic that will strike these ones in that day. And the language of verses 12 to 14 is comparable to that in the prophet Joel, in his book, in Joel, chapter 2 and verse 31. And it says this, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming, and, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord that's in Joel and we see the same kind of thing happening here in Revelation similar language again is found in the book of Isaiah chapter 13 if you're taking notes jot down chapter 13 of Isaiah verses 9 10 and also chapter 34 verses 2 to 4 we don't have time to go through those this morning but once again a comment made by this commentator John F Valverd is worth listening to this is what he says He says, taken as a whole, chapter 6 is one of the most important and pivotal chapters in the entire book. It describes the first six seals and also introduces the seventh seal, which consists of and introduces the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of of the wrath of God in chapters 8 and 9 and in chapter 16 later. And he goes on and he says this, the contents of chapter 6 should put to rest the false teachings that God being a God of love could not judge a wicked world. And that's what we do need to be aware of. We're not going to be in someone's face, but we do need to be aware of the fact that when people say, but isn't God love? Isn't God, you know, isn't, isn't God going to forgive everybody? Well, well, have you read his book? Do you see that he's also a God of judgment? 
Yes, he is the Lamb of God, but he's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's a fearful lion when he judges sin. Just look at what Jesus suffered on the cross. You, you can't get to the Father other than through him. There was no other way of saving you than for what Christ suffered, the degradation, the humility, and the pain and the, the, the beyond our comprehension. There's no other way of meeting with God other than through what Jesus did. And if Jesus suffered that, you can, be, you can believe that God's judgment will be severe on those who reject his son, who went through what he did go through for you and me. So we need to bear that in mind when we're cheering our faith. As I said, not in someone's face, but they need to hear the truth. The truth. Chapter 7, keep moving on. Oh, I've really got to move on. Um, it's been described as an interlude between the 6th and the 7th seal. As though God's judgments are suspended while he places a protective seal on the foreheads of his servants. Uh, in regards to the two groups, let me move through quickly here. Uh, the, the 144,000 that are there, uh, the unnumbered multitude that are there, they're the second group. And commentators, again, as you can imagine, have got different views on who these groups are. Are they the same? Are they different? Um, I tend to lean again in this view that based on what Romans, what Paul says in Romans 11, particularly verses 25 and 26, I think the 144,000 really are part of the, tri the tribes of, of Israel there. I don't think God's finished with Israel yet. That's my view. While the unnumbered multitude uh, were this great miscellaneous body of the saved who, who came out of the great tribulation and they've been lifted into heaven. Glorious. And so much more could be said about chapter 7. But let me just uh, go on and, 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 and uh, read a comment again that I appreciated from Leon Morris. He says, For people confronted with tyrants who put their trust in sword and bow, he said, it's good to be reminded that the final triumph... You're listening to this. This is fantastic. I love what he says. He says, it's good to be reminded that the final triumph comes through quiet trust in Christ. The tyrants out there who think they can annihilate the church and finish the church with sword, with bow, with weapons, uh, they got it wrong. The ones who are saved are those who, are, who come to Christ. The ones who really triumph... It's through their quiet faith in Christ, quiet trust in Christ. And I love what Isaiah 30, verse 15, I've got this verse framed on my office wall, as a matter of fact, and it says this, In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. Isaiah 30, verse 15, the NIV says, In quietness and in trust is your strength. Magnificent words, and it's true. This is the key, my dear friends, this morning. This is the key. Your trust in Christ. That quiet assurance, that blessed assurance that Jesus is mine and I'm his. And we have a glimpse of the promise and the provision for those who, who do have that quiet trust in Christ. We have a little glimpse of what that looks like here in verse 17 of chapter 7. Look at these beautiful words. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Magnificent words. Are you going to be in that camp, the Jesus team? Because this is an enormous contrast. What enormous contrast, enormous contrast is this between what I've just read here and what we find in chapter 8 of Revelation and chapter 9. 
when the seventh seal is opened by the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine wrath and judgment is far more severe and intense than ever before against an unrepented and hardened humanity. Let me keep moving. Revelation 8 and verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. When you read that particular verse, there's something going on here. What's something different about this particular seal than the other six? When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The silence seems to highlight the severity of what is about to happen. It's a solemn time. It's like the quiet before the storm, the lull before the storm. That's how I think we see it. And what a storm it will be for those who have chosen to remain outside of Christ and outside of his protection, outside of his covering, the covering of the blood of Christ. What a storm they will face by the Lamb of God who's the lion. Revelation 8 verses 2 to 5, have a read of those. Each of the seven trumpets unleashes a specific judgment of greater intensity than the first six seals. But it won't be as destructive as it will be when the bowls of wrath are poured out in chapter 16. So the, four, the first four trumpets, the first four trumpets basically destroy the earth's ecology. That's what really happens. The first, these trumpets, these first four trumpets basically destroy the earth's ecology. Not a winner for the Greens. Not a winner for the Greens, or for anyone else, for that matter, who are on the earth in that time. The censer that held the prayers of the saints is now filled with fire from the altar, and it's flung, it's hurled to the earth. Fred T. Smith, anybody know Fred T. Smith? Used to be the pastor of uh, City Tab back in 1948 to 1968. Dear old Fred. Um, my father-in-law had the privilege of writing a book that he put together. And in this book, Fred wrote, it was a book called Gems of Glory. This is what Fred says about this. He says, the prayers have always been as fire before God, especially the prayers of the martyrs. And then he says, pardon me, he says, how that fire must have burned. And then he writes in the column, he says, just a thought for reflection, he says. Warren Wiersbe, he picks up the same theme and he says this, these prayers are the prayers of God's people, thy kingdom come. This incense especially represents the cries of the martyrs. Many of the prayers of, of vengeance in the Psalms will be rightfully used by God's people during these days of intense suffering. He says, The fire from the altar cast upon the earth speaks of the wrath of God about to be poured out on unbelievers. Thunderings, he says, always give warning that a storm is coming. Thunderings always give warning that a storm is coming. And in conclusion now, as I wrap this up, did you realise that we're in the storm season? Kay McGrath uh, happened to mention that on Channel 7 News some while, while ago. We're in the storm season, folks, and if you come from Fernvale and Chinchilla, you certainly will know that the storm season has hit us, sadly, for them. And who knows for us? You know, the Weather Bureau and the local authorities, they'll do their best to warn us, to prepare us and to encourage us to have a plan for the coming storms. You can even download an app and the app is called Early Warning Network. Some of you might even have that. It's a phone app. You can download it, which will give you the early warnings that storms are approaching. 
And you know, in a likewise manner, as we've only touched on this morning, the Word of God warns us, the Word of God prepares us, the Word of God pleads with us, pleads with us to have a plan. Specifically, the one and only plan. His plan. No other plan works. It's got to be His plan. And it's the plan of salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It's only then, if you adopt His plan, this plan, His plan, it's only then that you'll be reassured, absolutely assured, and you'll be prepared and you'll be safe and you'll be protected from the coming storms of God's wrath and judgment when it's poured out upon the earth. Because as we've seen in chapter 6 and verse 17, it says this, For the great day of their wrath has come. And listen, and who can stand? And you know it's a rhetorical question. Because the rhetorical question is basically saying, the obvious answer is, well, no one will stand. No one outside of Christ will stand, just as no one, was, no one outside of Noah's ark that time will stand, which could stand when God's wrath was poured out upon them. When God's storm came upon an unbelieving world, a, a God-rejecting world, anyone outside of the ark perished. Inside the ark, they were safe. If you're in Christ, you'll be safe. If you're outside of Christ, you will not. You will perish. It's as simple as that. And it's as awesome as that. It's daunting. Folks, I want to just finish with four things. Sorry, I'm going over time. Four things to ponder and I finish. Four things. One's already been mentioned this morning. Brothers and sisters, we need to have a healthy fear of God. Whatever that means for you. It's a healthy fear. We're not to be terrified as unbelievers will be, but we are to have a healthy fear of God. We need to receive and adopt his storm preparation plan for your life. In other words, it's your faith in Jesus Christ. That's his storm preparation for you. There's none others. There's no alternatives. It's his plan. Thirdly, be watchful and alert. Be prayerful. Be watchful, be alert, be prayerful. I'm being quick. I'm sorry. And fourthly, it's a question that we need to ask ourselves. How can we be an early warning network for those in our own circle, in our own families, about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and what that means for our unbelieving family and friends? How can we be? Lord, help us to be an effective early warning network to those around us. How do we do that, Lord? needs to be a prayer from our hearts to God. And God will show you and God will open up that way for you to share your faith, to let your light shine so that you have these opportunities to speak the truth. Not just go la-di-da-di about God loves you. There's something more about him that's terrifying if you're outside of him on that day when he comes for you. We need to be aware of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We have rushed through a bit, Lord, but I just pray that you know, your truth has spoken to us and you've equipped us a little bit better than perhaps we were before. Lord, wet our appetite to get into your word, Lord, to, to just have time out with you where we can open and read and that your spirit just opens our eyes and our hearts to your truth. Lord, we want to be those, as Jesus said, let those who have ears, let them hear what the spirit is saying to the churches and to our own lives, Lord. Father, thank you for your presence with us today. And we ask as we go from this place that you go before us. Open the way. Help us to be this early warning, early warning network, Lord, to those around us. 
Help us to display the confidence that we can have in you. Not arrogance, Lord, but a quiet confidence in Christ, that quietness of our faith in Jesus. Let people see this is real. And let them ask the questions and let us have opportunities to share the hope that's within us, Lord. We thank you, we bless you, we commit each other to you now as we go out into this day of yours and indeed into this week. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Folks, we'll finish there. There'll be no song to finish off. Thank you. Bless you.